Hello Rebels, you're listening to a free audio-only recording of my show, The Gun Show. My guest tonight is a woman I met when the Rebel team was in Israel last year. She's British-Israeli author and public speaker Kay Wilson. She survived a Palestinian terror attack that left her friend Christine Lucan dead. Kay discusses the harrowing tale of survival and healing in her new book, The Rage Less Traveled. If you like listening to this podcast, then you will love watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to premium content. That's what we call our long-form TV-style shows here on The Rebel. Subscribers get access to watching my weekly show, as well as other great TV-style shows too, like Ezra's Nightly, Ezra Levant Show, and David Menzies' fun Friday night show, Rebel Roundup. It's only 8 bucks a month to subscribe, or you can subscribe annually and get two months free. And just for our podcast listeners, you can save an extra 10% on a new premium membership by using the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe. Just go to therebel.media slash shows to become a member. And please leave a five-star review on this podcast and subscribe in iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Those reviews are a great way to support The Rebel without ever having to spend a dime. And now, please enjoy this free audio-only version of my show. You're listening to a Rebel Media Podcast. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're watching The Gun Show, Alberta Election Edition. Well, I knew the NDP would go low and personal in this election campaign. It's, you know, re- can't run on job creation, economic growth, fighting for Alberta pipelines or fiscal competence either. But the depths to which the NDP have sunk, I think they've surprised even me. And I've got to be honest with you here. I I didn't think I could have a lower opinion of the NDP than I already had, but here I am. The campaign started with Rachel Notley saying that Jason Kenney might not be racist, but he has a problem with racism in his party. Then the NDP accused Jason Kenney of homophobia in an attack ad. Then they accused an Oxford-educated UCP candidate named Kaylin Ford of being a white supremacist. The NDP and their proxies in the mainstream media then accused an Iraqi Christian immigrant who was also a UCP candidate, a woman named Eva Kiriakos, of being Islam. التاريخ اليوم هو 28 12 2010 كيفاح انت بتعرفي احنا باي منطقه موجودين؟ بعرفها اي منطقه؟ في منطقه الدير منطقه الدير دير الايش؟ دير الجمال دير الجمال سكينة معي تحت ال تحت ال البلوزة يعني ظليت ماشي وهو هيك عاجب إبراهيم ماسك معي وخذناه وطلعنا من هاي الناحية أوكي يلا أوكي أنا كنت ماسك هيك وإبراهيم كان ماسك من الناحية الثانية هي بالفترة هاي كانت تزعل حكت إشي صوتات صحيح 
اوكي شو كانت شو اسمه؟ ابراهيم كان شاد ثمها مسكر ثمها ابراهيم كان مسكر ثمها؟ صحيح من هون ثلاث بدنا نقول انه هذا كان الخنجر وين كان محطوط انت معه؟ تحت البلوزه اوكي انا لما جيت كانت السكينة في جنبي شو كانت كانت هي لابسة 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 العدل صحيح اوكي آه ضربت انا مرة هيك اوكي كمان مرة اوكي تخبرت هيك اوكي مين حط الخيط هيك؟ ابراهيم ابراهيم هو كان ماسك من الناحية هاي اوكي وانا كنت ماسك من الناحية هاي ليش ليش جيتوا على المنطقة هاي؟ جينا نقتل تقتل مين؟ يهود ليه؟ بس جينا نقتل And of course, of course, Calgary Progressive Mayor Nahid Nenshi just had to stick his nose into it all and also accuse conservatives in Canada of winking at white nationalists on an appearance on the CBC. And as for policy, God only knows what sort of policy the NDP are introducing because apparently all they've been doing is character assassination. <laughs> so joining me to dissect this first insane week of the Alberta election campaign is a veteran political operative and a political watcher, my good friend, William Macbeth from Save Calgary. He and I, <laughs> try to make sense of all the NDP hyperbole and innuendo in an interview we recorded Monday. is Kay Wilson. She's the author of a new book, The Rage Less Traveled. It's her memoir of surviving that machete attack. Uh, Kay, you're in Tel Aviv tonight? In Jerusalem. Oh, the fantastic. Capital city of the Jewish people. The eternal capital. That's right. Now, Kay, I did interview la you last year when we were in uh, Israel and actually ran into you, um, I believe it was in Tel Aviv. We had a phenomenal interview, um, a, a haunting interview. If anybody wants to see that, they can go back and, and look for that. But Kay, I, I just want just a Coles Notes version. I don't want to rehash that whole other interview that we did. Um, but you are, a, a, I guess you're British, but you're also Israeli. Am I right? That's that's correct. I emigrated here um, in, when is it? Over 30 years ago, 33 years ago. Um, and you were attacked with your Christian friend, Christine Lucan, um, while you were hiking. Yes, it was, um, you know, on just a perfect winter day, in an Israeli winter day. And uh, we were you know, on the political map on our side of the line, so to speak. And we were accosted by two Palestinian terrorists held at knife point for half an hour. And then they found my Israeli ID. They assumed we were both Jewish and they bound and gagged us and started hacking at us with their machetes. And I watched my friend hacked to death before my eyes. Well, I myself sustained 
13 machete wounds and 30 broken bones. Now, I guess not to go into too much detail, but um, you did touch on it in your book that you did struggle with some, not just physical, I mean, 13 machete wounds, but PTSD that affected you uh, quite strongly. Yeah, that would be like a, saying the Second World War was a bit inconvenient. It's such yes, a masterful no understatement. Um, yeah, terrible PTSD, um, not be just because I myself was attacked, also because of the longevity that we were held at knife point, which is half an hour, where our fate is swinging in the balance. And then, of course, to witness this most, it's kind of a sacred sight to hear somebody pray to their God and watch them die. So to witness the friend, uh, my, the death of my friend, the murder, the brutal murder of my friend, while I myself was playing dead, uh, yeah, the fallout of PTSD uh, was, it was off the charts. And I can tell you, I'm glad we're talking about this actually, Sheila, because I haven't spoken much about PTSD and that takes a, a good chunk of the book. I mean, in the beginning, I was so traumatized. I was like dead in my soul. I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel sad my voice it just sounded like i was reading out a menu and then over the course of months of therapy you know I, it's like getting an onion and peeling it off and i started to be in touch again with who i am or what i was left uh, of as a person uh, the ptsd came in hypervigilance. i jump at the smallest sound i couldn't stand the color green or a tree because it happened in a forest um, noise, any kind of noise, sudden noise, relentless noise. I mean, it was just a hell on earth. It was a living hell. Uh, so uh, through therapy, you've sort of been able to cope with your PTSD. From what I understand, it never does really go away. It, it doesn't but go away, but that are, therapy are made things better? much manageable. It was definitely more manageable. I mean, I did, for, for people who are interested in psychology or just people who've been traumatized, I'm sure, I mean, it doesn't have to be an attempted murder, but I'm sure many of your viewers have had their own trauma in their life. And for me, I did three kinds of therapy. One was something called cognitive behavior therapy, which is where you exercise the power of your mind uh, to the sense that your thoughts determine your feelings. Okay, now I had terrible survivor's guilt. I felt that I watched her die to save my life. And that's not true. It's, I mean, it's true, but it's not true. I'm not, the, I'm not the cause of her death. So one kind of therapy helped me get my thoughts straight, which helped me deal with, to a, a massive degree, my own survivor's guilt. Another kind was called gradual exposure, where uh, when I think back now, my therapy was to go to outside somewhere and look at a tree. Look at a tree for five seconds. That's where I started off. And I took two friends of mine. One was an Arab bus driver I work with as a tour guide, and he had a pistol. The other was a colonel from the army. He had his M16. And I was standing there just looking at a tree. I was so scared. And then each week, it would be look at a tree for a few seconds longer. So that's called gradual exposure. And the last therapy is something called EMDR. Uh, even after the attack, four years after the attack, I was having the most awful flashbacks, maybe a thousand a day. It was becoming unmanageable. I was self-medicating. And uh, it was actually through a very lovely tourist I'd met who's a psychotherapist, and she gave me treatment. And I don't know how it works, but it certainly cut down the flashbacks. So all these things helped me. 
And I've got to say, uh, I mean, you've been to my wonderful country. There's something about living in Israel because this whole country's got PTSD. You know, for the people by Gaza, they're being shelled all the time. There's people who've buried their loved ones in terror attacks. It's a, it's a people's army. Um, so people here suffer, but they get through it. They just pick themselves up and they get on. And there's something about being in a community where we are at always existential threat, but it's a community that loves life. And I've learned learning again to love life. And that's the best revenge to death there is. You know, um, I, I think where I experienced that sentiment that um, life is the best revenge um, was in Starot. Um, and I, when I was there, I asked uh, a dad because it, the overwhelming majority of kids there have PTSD. I mean, it's hard to play outside um, because they're so close to Gaza. And I asked a dad there, why do you live here? Why There are so many other places you could live. And he said, because when we move, the terror comes that much closer to everyone else. And, uh, you know, when we were talking to the mayor of Starot when we were there, he's, you know, he's showing us how the community is growing and thriving and it's young and and expanding and it's i think it's in spite of that terror specifically in spite of the fact that their closest neighbors in gaza want them dead that they are living and they're thriving yes i think life is an extremely uh what's the word gratifying form of revenge it really yeah. is and uh, I mean, it's funny we're talking about this because people often ask me, oh, did you ever want to go back to England after what happened to you? And first of all, I've been outside of England nearly 30 years, so it's not really, uh, it, I've been here much longer. Well, you know, I'm 54, so do the math. But uh, there was no reason why I wanted to be back in England. It was actually the vibrancy of life here that has been, as we're talking, it's been part of my uh, long life recovery. And there's like, we have a word in Hebrew, it means dafka. I mean, it's it, it's called dafka. And it really means just because, to spite, in spite of. We're going to do this because you want to do this to us. And I love it. It's like a, yeah. na, 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 na. you know what I mean? <laughs> I, 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 just, I think that... I hope the terrorists have got rebel media in their cell and they're watching this interview. <laughs> Me too. Um, I hope I hope they torture them in Gitmo with my, with my interviews. Guy for the rest of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, not to be um, dark, um, because what you—I I mean, we're talking about some pretty positive things about the state of Israel. But your attackers, you faced your attackers in court. You you brought um, them to justice, um, which, I mean, is difficult for anybody, but you also are taking on the institutionalized terror and the funding of these terrorist families. Um, you're also taking that on as a Kay Wilson cause. Yes, absolutely. Maybe I'll just backtrack a bit. Sure, of course. I, I was fortunate enough to have a little penknife with me on the day of the attack. And I, I managed to stab one in the, what do you call it, in the nuts, right? In the balls. I'll think of a nice <laughs> word. And it, and his blood oh, was perfect. on his sleeve. 
No, sorry. Irish rebel media. I forgot I could say what I wanted. Yeah. But uh, his blood was on my sleeve and it was his DNA which led to the capture. And also to say that after I played dead, I walked over a mile gag bound and barefoot in this terrible state with bones sticking out of me. So there was no when it comes to the court. There's no forensic doubt. The Secret Service caught them very quickly. They took them back to the forest. Uh, there's film footage, which I believe you're showing your village, uh, village, your viewers, about why they did it. They came to kill Jews. That was explicitly the, the point. And when I faced them in court, I mean, it was it was the most horrendous experience because they were they were gloating. There wasn't like an element of remorse. And then to make it worse, getting onto your subject matter now, Sheila, to make it worse, these people are rewarded by foreign aid. Let's put it like this. Let's talk about Great Britain being a British citizen as well. The British government gives millions of dollars, millions of pounds rather, to the Palestinian Authority. And out of that general budget of the Palestinian Authority, the Arabs set aside 7%. And then they... Uh, the Palestinian Authority have a reward system for the prisoners. So my would-be murderers, me, a British citizen, these people have got or received, I don't know what the math is in uh, in Sterling, they've received more than $70,000 each. And now I've been lobbying the British government. Uh, I sent an email attached with my really gory um stab wounds, which I believe you're also going to show, and you should view, warn viewers to close their eyes. But you can see it's horrendous injuries. And I asked them, I said, look, I told them, I said, you are paying the people who tried to murder me. And I got maybe a handful of answers back, six probably. And every single one was, uh, it's like out of the tens and tens, it was like, oh, dear Miss Wilson, we're very sorry for what happened to you. The British government are committed to working uh, on a two-state solution. Now, I wasn't writing to them about politics. I was writing them to say that my family in England, through their taxes, are paying the people who tried to murder me. And I find that outrageous. And there are liars in the government. I'm sorry, I will name and shame. Alistair Burt, Stephen Twigg, you know, every time you mentioned you've been in Shteot, when, when Israel suffers, Israeli civilians suffer a rocket barrage, Alistair Burt will tweet something like, oh, we condemn this outrage. We don't need his condemnation. We need action. We need action that they stop the funding. They call it fungible. You know, it can go anywhere. Other governments are stopping the funding. Why can't the British government stop the funding? America stopped it. Holland stopped it. Sweden, Denmark, they're all working on it. I think it's a moral outrage, but I think it's a reflection of your country, my country, your country, if you, you know, I, do. I think it's a reflection of the state that England is in now. Well, it really is the state of Canada, too. I mean, our previous government under the Conservatives cut off funding to um, these UN organizations where the money ends up back in the hands of Hamas or other terror groups. They cut off funding and Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government reinstated it. I wanted to ask you your opinion um, of uh, like the Americans are really leading the charge to cut off funding to these UN organizations that are just acting as um, m money launderers to terrorist groups, to be honest with you. But 
the Americans have gone one step further. They say not only do we need to cut off the funding to these UN organizations, but they want them abolished entirely. For example, Donald Trump has called for the end to of the UN Relief Agency for Palestinians in the Near East. Uh, he says it's it, it's not even worth saving. Um, what do you think about that? Well, uh, let me talk about a personal experience, okay? Sure. I wouldn't want to speak about anything uh, I don't know. I, sure. I'm actually, for all everything that happened to me, I'm very well thought of in the Arab Muslim Palestinian world. I've risked my own life to protect young Arabs who have been under death threats from Muslims who want to murder them. Uh, I've crowdfunded through my social media several small projects for any Palestinian who wants to take responsibility and start a business, you know, and that's what we're doing, little tiny projects. And I've become a very good friends with a young man in a refugee camp. He's not religious Muslim, he's culturally Muslim. And uh, he invited me there one day and I went. And I mean, the place is just like, it's so filthy. There's trash everywhere. But you know what? Amongst all this disheveled buildings, which are absolutely right, it's a United Nations project, there are so many fancy four by four cars, all belonging to the locals. Now in Israel, a four by four car is like three, four times the price that it is in, uh, let's say Britain. These people have the money. I'm not talking about the UN people, I'm talking about the local Palestinians, where the mentality is poor me, poor me, eternal victimhood, but they have the money to spend on these kind of vehicles. Now, the other thing about the United Nations, these fat salaries they've been given, like Chris Gunnis, I mean, it's, the man is outrageous, fake tears all over YouTube, the poor Palestinians, what have you actually done for these people? I, I, I don't mean to sound arrogant, I've done more. I, ha I have done more for these people than he has in, in his t entire career, and I haven't taken a shekel for it, nor of any of the other people, the good people who are helping me with this. It's outrageous. It perpetuates victimhood, and I think President Trump is spot on. They're, they're squandering money there, both the Palestinians and the, and the United Nations. It's an outrage. Well, and I think, too, if we... if you know, that these terror groups who are in charge are keeping the Palestinian people poor. Um, it, it makes the idea of terror a, a smart economic choice because then your family, even if you are a suicide bomber, then at least your family is taken care of. So I really admire the work you're doing by addressing um, the economic problems that are that out, outside of religion. Religion is a big, huge part, but for some, it's because there are just no jobs, There, it's economic strife, and it's a money-making proposition to go and kill some Jews. It is money-making because, first of all, a lot of this, I mean, I don't know the exact figures now, but three years ago, the amount of foreign aid that the Palestinian had received was $69 billion, okay? Now, you look at Mahmoud Abbas, you look at all this leadership, look where the money's going. And it's right to say that a lot of the Palestinians are poor, but I'm telling you, I've been in Palestinian houses, yeah. also in the refugee camp, which are far more grandiose than where I live. So there's rich and there's poor. And uh, but for the most, these people are, they are poor. Maybe, you know, some would do well not to spend half a million shekel on a four by four car. But uh, it's it's a racket. It's a, it's a whole business racket. And it's not just the finance, all right? Um, it's the 
not just the financial incentive, it's the absolute incitement. Palestinian media is full of incitement to murder Jews. And there's an amazing uh, organization, a nonprofit called Palestinian Media Watch, who monitor what goes on in the school curriculums, on the television. It's Nazi-like and it's propaganda. And I don't use that word lightly. Okay, so you have the incitement, you have brainwashing of children, which is absolute child abuse. These are children, these are young children. We can't blame these young children. So you have child abuse, you have uh, absolutely vile incitement to murder Jews, and then you have the financial rewarding system. And how can any Western democracy support a, uh, an authority like that? How can they? How can they? Is it because they feel sorry for them? Is it because, you know, they're poor? Is it because they're frustrated? Let me tell you something, Sheila. I've been frustrated, okay? I've lost my health. I lost my friend. I lost my home. I lost sleep. I lost weight. I lost routine. I lost the ability to answer how I am. And because I've seen a woman hacked up before my eyes, I've, I've lost my innocence. I've lost everything. But I haven't gone around jumping on people, gagging them, tying them up and hacking them to death because I'm frustrated. L lowering the moral bar. How patronizing is that? And the Western governments who keep funding these people, keep funding this authority, shame on them. Every single one of them. They're not empowering anybody. Well, and Sorry, I think I'm no. really like fast and, and enthusiastic. It's Israeli, <laughs> everybody. It's Israeli. But I feel very passionate about it. Well, of course you do. Um, I think there's another facet, too, in all of this is not just the Palestinian propaganda, but I think the role the mainstream media plays in perpetuating the the narrative of um, the oppressive Israeli occupation versus um, these just uh, gaggle of Hamas and uh, Gazan protesters at the border. And um, you often see the images of children um face to face with israeli soldiers um that's what travels around the world but you never see just how moral the israeli army really is when we were there that was one of the things that was really uh that really stuck with me is how moral the israeli army is what they do to mitigate the civilian loss of life versus the other side that uses civilians as propaganda tools. A dead civilian is a million dollars in in free advertising for Hamas and for you know the leadership in Gaza. So they encourage parents to bring their children to these protests because that child standing facing an Israeli soldier, that is the kind of propaganda that money can't even buy. Absolutely. And it's, you know, one of my personal friends, and I mean friends, somebody I've met, is Colonel Richard Kemp. And he is, uh, was the commander of the infantry forces in Afghanistan, a British commander. And he's spoken at the United Nations. This is a man with uh, credibility. And you're right, he's absolutely, he's called the Israeli army the most moral army in the world. Okay. And that's an absolute fact. Now, that thing that you're touching on uh, about propaganda, there's footage on Twitter. These, these Palestinians, they actually practice how to die. 
they, there's pro there's propaganda stuff of them putting on makeup. They'll steal pictures of children in Syria and claim it to be their own. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous stuff, and it's uh, it's unfair. It's um, an absolute tirade against Israel and concerning, you know, talk about mainstream media, uh, the BBC, I, I don't have a good word to say about them. I mean, even the headlines, it's not just the image. It will say mm -hmm. Palestinian shot. And then you read down a few lines and it will be after he tried to murder an Israeli. He comes with a knife. He tries to murder the Israeli and the Israeli army will neutralize him. But they barely report on that. By the way, the BBC and Sky News, if you allow me to talk about fake sure. news, and LBC, by the way, uh, I have tried. I mean, you, I hope you can tell and you've been following me. I don't have a hateful bone in my body directed to people who've done nothing towards me. And I always say it's a Muslim surgeon who saved my life. OK, and I'm proud that many of my good friends are Muslims. And despite my so-called charitable work I do with uh, Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians, not one major news outlet will ever have me on their show. In fact, the BBC turned me down in March this year. OK, they turned me down. They were looking for a survivor of terrorism and they were going to do a program that addresses what you've been talking about, the pay to slay. So the BBC man called me here and then he says, I'll get back to you. So he gets back to me and you know what he says? It's staggering. He says, you're too well known. And I thought, how disgusting is that? What they want, they want somebody who looks brown, somebody who looks estranged, somebody who struggles with their English, and therefore it will break the commonality that there is between the Israeli being interviewed and the people who are watching the program. I mean, they are going out their way not to uh, portray any survivors of terrorism or any Israeli really as a human being. And shame on them. Even LBC, you know, I, was, I wanted to talk to Majid Nawaz, who I respect him deeply. I think he's doing amazing things. I've written to him. He hasn't answered my email. He tweets rudely on, you know, social media. And I don't understand what this, it's like a blackout on me. I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. I'm doing everything I can to help the people who, from that same people, came my would-be murderers. I challenge them all, have me on your radio program, have me on your television. What am I doing wrong? Is it because I'm speaking the truth? Is it because, you know what, if I'd have been a Muslim, trans, black, Palestinian, happened to be stabbed by white Jewish settlers, would that have, would that have warranted me a, a, a place on the media? Would that have sold my book? It's outrageous. It's outrageous. It's uh, you know, I do agree with you. I think um, you're the wrong kind of victim. You are um, a regular, normal woman. You were out there with your Christian friend doing things that I do all the time. I hike all the time. Um, and I think also, again, your your British accent, that remains. I think it makes you, um, it, it really brings terror home. When if it could happen to Kay Wilson, regular, normal, English sounding Kay Wilson, it can really happen to any of us. And they don't want that as as part of the story. They want terror, especially terror happening to Israelis, which happens every single day. They want it to seem foreign and rare when really your story shows us that it, it it's not. Absolutely. It's it's absolutely and I'll probably get into trouble uh 
by saying this, but I've been in enough trouble. I've caused an international incident. But I, I, I think I think it's a Jew problem. I don't yeah. think they're fond of Jews. And uh, you know what? That that needs. I mean, obviously, anti-Semitism. It's riddling the Labour Party and all kinds of uh, echelon in the United Kingdom. But I think they have a problem. They'll say, you know what? It's not a problem with Israel. I mean, it's we don't we don't have a problem with Jews. We just have a problem with Zionism. Right. What does that mean? You know, I saw yesterday. I was shocked. Uh, somebody wrote on social media uh, that if you're as quote if you're a Zionist, you deserve to have been attacked. I mean, where have people got to? What kind of world do we live in? that we so freely say these things to one another. I mean, a little restraint, you know, a little dignity. Well, I think you're asking a little too much for restraint and dignity on social media. Kay, I could talk to you all day long, um, but I think we're headed towards the half an hour point here. Um, I want to give you a, a chance to tell people where they can find your book, um, I have the Kindle version, and I also have the Audible version. And uh, I just want to make one point. I think I, I recommend everybody to buy the Audible version of your book, The Rage Less Traveled, because you, you tell the story. You didn't hire a voice actor or someone to read it for you. It's you. So you can hear the emotion in your voice. And I know that it, I'm sure it was very hard for you to, to after writing it, retell it. Um, but I think it's worth every penny to hear this story told in your voice. But I want to give you an opportunity to tell everybody where they can get your book and how they can get in contact with you. Well, Sheila, thank you very much. So listen, Rebel, Rebels. Yes. Uh, my my uh, book, as you see on the image, is called The Rage Less Traveled. And it's spelled the American way, L-E-D. You can get it from my website, theragelesstraveled.com. Um May I just say something that I I actually had to self-publish and I want to tell you why. I mean, I had an agent and she'd sent it to all the big New York publishers and they all wrote back. I was very flattered because I don't consider myself a writer, but I had to learn to write. And they said, you know, this is uh, this is a talented writer. This is a gripping story. It's a page turner. All the things you want to hear from the top New York publishers. No one had the courage to publish my book. And I'll, I'll summarize in one rejection letter. It says, uh, it, because Wilson, I mean, it, they make me sound like a tennis ball, but because Wilson <laughs> did not uh, speak about her charitable work with, wait for it, the young and impoverished Palestinians, end quote, uh, we're going to pass on this one. How outrageous. First of all, a memoir is about me. It's about the author. It's not about other people. Secondly, to speak about young and impoverished Palestinians on the back of my butchered back, over the body of my dead friend, to virtue signal. It's outrageous. So get my book. You can find it on Amazon, The Rage Less Traveled, or my website, theragelesstraveled.com. And just to confirm what Sheila is saying, you know, when I actually read the book, I realize I don't have a particularly radiophonic voice. It's like I've got a face for radio and, you know, you can't do everything, you can't be everything. But when I read it, you're absolutely right. It was hard. I mean, there were a couple of times where I was I was choking back the tears. And I think it makes for a very, very powerful 
powerful book. And I'm, I'm thrilled as far as it is decently appropriate for how the book came out. And I also want to thank Sheila and you guys at Rebel Media for giving me a platform and keep up the fantastic work. Oh, thank you, Kay. You know, Kay, you're such an inspiration, um, a, a joy to talk to. Um, you're just a fighter. You're just a fighter. And, um, you know, I think you have a bit of that uh, sort of rebel spirit in that we say we tell the other side of the story. You really are the other side of the story um, with what's happening in in Israel. You embody that. You embody that that the morality, the charitable work, the uh, surviving spirit um, when the rest of the world is demonizing the country. I think you really are the walking embodiment of that. So, Kay, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm going to have you on again. Um, because I, I, I truly enjoy talking to you and I'm sure our listeners and viewers will enjoy hearing from you as much as I do. Thank you very much, Sheila. Thank you. weeks we're all going to get called a lot of names it's going to be a dirty sleazy campaign from the very people who spent the last four years scolding conservatives as mean and out of touch with normal people I think Albertans have had enough of being talked down to and lectured by Rachel Notley and her perpetually inept MLAs Albertans care about the economy they care about jobs they want to get back to work, and they don't care about things someone said 20 years ago. Now, it might be hard to stay hopeful as a conservative for the next three weeks, as the mainstream media continues to act as attack dogs for Rachel Notley and the NDP. But you know what? I take solace in the desperation of it all. The more desperate the NDP gets, the more personal and dirty they get, the more I know they know that this...